Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. Oh, it's so close to Christmas. Can't you smell it? Oh, well, we're sitting here. We're drinking cocoa. We're eating gingerbread. There's a fire in the corner. Carolers are outside our window. It's just a beautiful, beautiful Christmas scene we're in right now. To look over some opinions from the Nebraska Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals. Wouldn't you agree with me, Carson? I would agree with you. I love your hat. Oh, thank you very much. It's a it's a Santa hat, uh, kind of. But it's just a beautiful day to be alive. And You know, I'd, I'd like to take something back if I could. Okay, Can, yes, take I, it back. I just, you know, that elf on a shelf that I, I disparaged and, and I... He's just the most beautiful thing, and it's the magic of Christmas that you get with that elf on a shelf, and I I think parents need to implement that maybe even a little earlier. I think they should start maybe after Halloween and just, you know, build up to more the anticipation of Christmas. More elves on more shelves. More elves on shelves, and, and, and just take them down and just show your appreciation for Christmas. It's just a beautiful thing. Christmas starts at Halloween now, folks. You've heard it right it, it here. It should. It should. It should just be an all, maybe all year round. Maybe we should just do Elf on a Shelf all year round. I think that's a great idea. We're just committed to doing something with this elf. And that maybe that's the magic of the elf. The elf makes it all 365 days. I mean, I got visited by three spirits last night. And um, it was they were three elfin spirits. And one was past, present, and future. And, and after that, I just really felt that the elf on a shelf is a wonderful thing. Wow, I feel like I've almost seen this movie before. I know. It's just so great to be here. I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Oh, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Well, we're going to have a Merry Christmas because there were no no uh, Supreme Court opinions this week. Yeah, no Supreme Court opinions. So we have another one of those weeks where the Court of Appeals steals the entire spotlight, and uh, they're the only thing on tap today. All right. So we have nothing from the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court, but we do have something from Court of Appeals. Should we just get started? Or? Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels wrong to not have an ex parte summary, but I don't really know how we have an ex parte summary when it's just the Court of Appeals. It's just a, some radio silence for ex parte summary, I suppose. All right. All right. The ex parte summary. Uh, what do we got now? Carson, go ahead with the Court of Appeals. Well, we only have the Court of Appeals, but it is certainly not a light week. So we start out with a published opinion uh, coming out of the district court for uh, Burt County. And Again, I think this is one of those opinions where you're going to uh, want to take a look at it, especially if you have anything that is dealing uh, with negligence actions and then most importantly, maybe um, multi-employer employee uh, actions where you are wondering if someone is a independent contractor, if they are a principal and agent, if they uh, are engaged in a joint venture, and what things you need to do to prove that. So uh, that's kind of the teaser for what we've got going on here. But the little bit of background is essentially we have uh, Ronenfelt Farms, which is a Nebraska corporation, uh, which has a principal place of business in Burt County. And basically what they do is they have a um, swine farrow to finish operation, meaning that they uh, take little pigs, um, they go from uh, birthing out uh, piglets and then raise them all the way until uh, finish and they become that uh, great bacon that we all love. Uh, so we deal with Rodenfeld Farms, and then we have two uh, other individuals who are relevant here. The first is uh, ARP, which ARP was the primary uh, manure pumping service uh, that was used at a uh, Windy Hill facility, which was a uh, sow facility owned by Rodenfeld Farms, and then Frost. And Frost was essentially 
a friend of ARP who also had pumping services and on this uh, fateful event was involved in helping to pump uh, Wendy Hills. And so basically what happens here is that there is this Wendy Hills facility, which I guess is a uh, incredibly important genetic uh, sow facility owned by Rodenfelt Farms that deals with uh, raising uh, you know young pigs, and uh, it was incredibly important to them as far as hog genetics and, and things of that nature. And so uh, this hog barn, hog facility had uh, pretty strict biosecurity. Uh, checkpoints and uh, monitors at this facility in order to avoid uh, certain risks of diseases and other um, issues that could come from outside individuals coming to this farm. And the the big deal that we're dealing with here is porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome, or PERS, which uh, is known in the swine industry to transfer pretty regularly from one farm to another. And basically what happens here is that uh, there's a ton of pumping that needs to be done. It needs to be done by early uh, November. And so ARP comes and is going to do this pumping, but he doesn't think he can get it all done in the amount of time that he needs to. And so he has uh, his buddy Frost come to uh, also help do pumping. And essentially what happens is that ARP had been told of the uh, biosecurity protocols, uh, made sure that he had done everything that was necessary. He tells Frost, hey, uh, make sure you've disinfected all your equipment uh, at least. uh, And it was debated whether it was 24 or 48 hours in advance of coming to this facility to pump. Uh, Make sure you've done that. And then, um, you know, I need you to come and and help me, uh, you know, pump all of this waste. And so basically what happens is that Frost comes and helps pump, but apparently the protocol for clearing out these pumping uh, trucks was to uh, pump a cattle facility before uh, you had came and pumped waste at one of these hog facilities. And so Frost uh, had failed to do that, comes, helps, and does the pumping, and almost immediately after ARP and Frost uh, leave within a couple of days, all of a sudden all of these... uh, hogs at this facility start coming down with purrs and so eventually they narrow it down to the fact that uh, frost had immediately preceding the pumping of the uh, rodenfelt farms facility had pumped a hog facility in colfax county which had purrs and so they connect that uh, purrs infestation i guess at rodenfelt farms to the pumping of from frost in colfax county and that's what this litigation ensues from and basically the big issue that we have on appeal uh, for uh, the first primary issue was were arp and frost engaged in a joint venture and so therefore they were both um, liable for the damage and the uh, pers infestation that happened at rodenfelt farms And so Frost had filed for summary judgment, and this is an appeal from that uh, granting of summary judgment in favor of Frost, saying that essentially this was not a joint joint venture, and therefore there could be no recovery uh, from the uh, Rodenfelt Farms against Frost as an individual. And so here we have a ton of discussion in regards to 
uh, basically what a joint venture is, how you can prove a joint venture, um, and the things that are necessary there. And so um, the nature of the joint venture you have to look at is uh, that there's two or more individuals who are contributing cash, labor, or property to a common fund with the intention of entering into some business transaction for the purpose of making a profit and that each of the parties has an equal voice in the manner of its performance and control of the agencies used therein. And the big issue here that they run into was basically the fact that the district court felt and the court of appeals agreed that Frost did not have an equal voice in this venture. And so that was the distinguishing factor that they found in concluding that this was not a joint venture and that ARP was essentially the principal and Frost was working on behalf of ARP because they had gone through all these communications and it essentially looked like ARP was the controlling individual here and Frost was simply going along with whatever ARP uh, was asking of Frost and you know that, that ARP was the controlling person and controlled the manner in which things were uh, conducted. And so the Court of Appeals agreed with the district court that it did not uh, meet the standard to have a joint venture. And so therefore, there could be no recovery against uh, Frost from a joint venture theory. However, uh, the one distinguishing thing that the Court of Appeals found was that absent even that joint venture, there was under a uh, ordinary negligence theory a a general uh, duty of care that existed uh, between frost and rodenfelt farms and so therefore uh, even though there wasn't a joint venture because frost had came onto their property and was doing uh, the pumping and all of those things of that nature there was an issue a material fact that could be decided by a jury as to uh, what duty was owed and was that duty breached because there was a general duty of care that was owed by Frost just by virtue of coming onto uh, the farm and doing that uh, pumping work. There was uh, that duty to Rodenfelt Farms that could be uh, resolved by a uh, jury. The other interesting part here and just kind of an aside and something to look at is that, uh, you know, basically throughout the discovery process, Rodenfelt Farms changed their theory of what the relationship between ARP and Frost were. The first time when they started, it was essentially a contractor subcontractor theory. And then eventually they had evolved to the uh, joint venture theory. And essentially what the Court of Appeals says here is, is first, uh, Rodenfelt Farms never amended their complaint and you know they took a little bit of issue with that and said you know we ordinarily wouldn't be able to address this but since the district court analyzed it we're able to analyze that on appeal and then the second thing that they stated which again is is kind of one of those interesting things you run into with with civil cases and as they develop is the fact that now on appeal since uh, the joint venture theory loses you can't now revert back to the subcontractor theory because those are essentially at odds and you you aren't allowed to pick a lane and then if that one is a uh, losing gamble you now can't go back and say okay well it wasn't uh, a joint venture it was simply a subcontractor uh, general contractor theory or a principal and an agent theory and so I guess that's one of those things where, where when you're evaluating your case and what's the best way to take it forward, either at a summary judgment or a trial, you, know, you have to be really careful with those alternate theories because eventually you end up kind of boxing uh, yourself out as far as uh, arguments go. So 
the general conclusion we come to here is that the uh, Court of Appeals affirmed the district court's granting of summary judgment on breach of contract and negligent based, negligence based on the uh, joint venture theory. However, they did find that the district court erred uh, in finding that Frost did not have a general duty of care in respect to the work that was provided at Rodenfeld Farms. And so, therefore, they reversed and remanded on that issue uh, to take those facts forward and deal with uh, that duty and whether or not it was breached and then uh, what the damages could be as a result of that breach. So, uh, you know, very valuable case. Anything with negligence, anything dealing with, again, that agency, joint venture, those kind of theories, ton of law um, and a ton of, of discussion seems like it must have been a pretty uh, big and involved case. And so whenever that happens, you uh, get some pretty powerful arguments. So a case that if you have anything like that in the civil realm, you probably want to go take a glance at. All right. I have State v. Ottens, which is a criminal case. Um, Mr. Ottens was convicted after a jury trial of possession of a controlled substance, uh, namely cocaine, resisting arrest, and child abuse. He was ultimately sentenced to 12 months in prison with some post released for the possession of cocaine, six months on the resisting arrest, and six months on the child abuse. Uh, the facts here indicate that um, there was a high-speed chase around the Lincoln area, and um, a confidential informant had previously said that Mr. Otten and some other individuals were going to be getting, uh, I think it was a half pound, fourth of a pound, excuse me, of methamphetamine from Denver and delivering it to rooms in the Oasis Inn and Suites. Um, and this confidential informant told them that, and then they, um, the investigator pr- uh, relayed that information to other law enforcement individuals, and they saw this vehicle on the interstate in, involved in this chase that was ultimately um, you know, stopped. They uh, concluded the chase because it became dangerous, so they stopped doing that. And so they went over to the Oasis Hotel, and lo and behold, they saw uh, Mr. Ottens and some other individuals there and uh, wanted to chat. Um, they had a uh, crowd of people kind of gathering um, because Mr. Ottens was uh, allegedly, well, or I mean, that's the facts indicate that he was egging people on saying, I don't know why you're doing this. And uh, law enforcement responded by tasing him and holding him down. A crowd of 20 or 30 people were around there. Um, the state patrol was there. I think there were only like three or four state patrol officers. So they called for backup because there were all these uh, other individuals kind of around them. And 20 or 30 law enforcement uh, individuals showed up and they uh, just uh, ended up arresting some other people, including family of Mr. Ottens. And then they go and they sweep the, uh, they, they search him incident to the arrest. He, he uh, violently like, assaulted one of the officers, I think you could say, as part of the resisting arrest before he was tased. And they found the uh, cocaine on him. And then they did a sweep of the uh, room where the confidential informant said the methamphetamine would be. And the uh, ch- there were children in there, two children, and the room was basically you know unsanitary um, with animal feces and other things uh, in the room. And um, they also found some methamphetamine residue and, and some pipes and some marijuana and other things like that. So there were lots of motions to suppress based on this because... The uh, high-speed chase, my understanding of, of reading this is the high-speed chase was not Mr. Ottens, uh, and so any information relayed to that, you know, uh, didn't didn't work. And then they um, tried to do a motion to suppress on all of those individuals, and then they did a Frank's hearing on the reliability of the confidential informant. So after the jury trial was concluded and, and um, 
Mr. Ottens was convicted. He was found not guilty of the possession of methamphetamine, so he was convicted of everything else. A juror emails the district court and says, I felt pressure to convict, um, and emails the district court and says, I felt pressure to convict, and this has been on my conscience, and I, I, conscience, and I just wanted to let you know. So they uh, have a start to have a hearing on that. The um, juror is subpoenaed, and an affidavit was provided, and the court basically summarily overruled the motion for new trial from the defendant um, and did not hear testimony from the juror um, based on some certain uh, statutes about you know, juror conduct and juror confidentiality as far as what was going on. And then they, all the motion to suppress, is, uh, motion to suppress uh, were um, overruled at the trial court level. The Franks motion was also uh, overruled. And um, on appeal, they, uh, the assignments of error are for motion to suppress the Franks motion, the new trial without a hearing, and ineffective assistance of counsel. So here we go. Um, the Court of Appeals addresses, this is great for law chunks. Uh, we got lots of law chunks that are really detailed and up to date on uh, everything involved, <coughs> excuse me, in uh, the motions to suppress, search incident to arrest. And um, here they find that the search incident to arrest could be from an unlawful arrest and it would still be valid. And the hotel sweep was justified because there were exigent circumstances, especially involving the children and all the people that were around and they needed to secure the area. So they had the ability to sweep the hotel room. The Franks hearing, um, while the warrant said nothing about the confidential informant's reliability, um, and there were other instances of maybe law enforcement being a little, uh, quote, I think it was a quote uh, from the trial court, a little reckless and um, embellishments, but it was not deliberate uh, recklessness in regards to the truth. So um, the Franks hearing was, uh, and the denial of the Franks uh, motion was affirmed. And the no hearing on the uh, juror issue, um, it was a basically a tired juror who buckled is not grounds for misconduct. Um, so there didn't have need to have a hearing on there, and they go through the statutory factors for that. There were several ineffective assistance of counsel claims. Those were all addressed and denied, and the conviction for Mr. Ottens and his sentence were affirmed. Okay, next case we come to is Graves versus Graves. This is an appeal from an order of the district court in Douglas County that found that Lori Graves was not in contempt of court for willfully violating tax exemptions of the party's uh, decree of dissolution of marriage. And basically what the issue here on appeal was that the, the um, couple had two children as a result of their marriage. They were divorced. One of the children reached the age of 19 and the mother tried to claim him uh, basically because the facts established uh, she was the one who was uh, paying for the majority of his care expenses had uh, expended something like $15,000 on him in that year. The father had expended no money and she believed because he had reached 19, she was able to uh, claim him. And as the opinion points out, the big issue uh, before the district court is not whether uh, the child was entitled to uh, be claimed by the father. Uh, the mother concedes eventually that you know, that that was accurate. The question was whether or not uh, the mother had uh, done in claiming the child had done so uh, willfully and with the intent to violate the provisions of the dissolution decree. And the district court had found uh, 
that he had not, and the Court of Appeals found that there was no abuse of discretion in uh, the finding that the district court had determined uh, that the father had failed to meet his uh, burden of proof in this regard, and so therefore uh, the uh, opinion was affirmed. All right. I have a State v. Moore, which is a criminal juvenile transfer hearing case uh, on the appeal. Mr. Moore, or, or I guess Shane, uh, he was 14 years old and 11 months at the time of the alleged offense. And the offense was that he stabbed a uh, 15-year-old. He was charged with uh, attempted murder and a number of other things. The transfer hearing uh, showed evidence of prior mental health issues. And a month before the incident, uh, the family moved from Colorado to Waverly, Nebraska, and lost their health insurance. And that affected the ability to obtain sufficient medication to manage his mental health issues. And then we have a stabbing that occurred. Um, he was lying in wait for the victim, and um, and it was a stranger of his choosing. And I'm going to uh, describe the incident here from the facts. It says, Moore proceeded to follow KP, that's the 15-year-old individual who was eventually stabbed, and eventually approached him saying that he wanted to be friends. KP indicated that he was not interested in being friends, started to walk away. When KP turned his back, Moore stabbed him several times. Despite being stabbed, KP was able to successfully fight back and get on top of Moore. However, Moore convinced him that he would stop if KP let him go. After KP released him and began to walk away, Moore reinitiated the attack by stabbing him two more times. Moore then left KPD or KP on the ground, thinking that he had killed him. After the attack, Moore called the police. He told 911 dispatch that he was calling to report a murder and explained, "I did it." By the way, just so you know, I'm not going to lie to anybody. He explained that he stabbed the victim and offered to lead police to the body. When asked if it was his plan to stab one, he responded, oh yeah, I've been thinking about it for a long, long time. Despite Morris belief that KP was dead, medical assistance arrived in time to save his life. So we have a hearing um, on the uh, detention side, um, detention individuals, he's been in detention obviously since that incident, and the detention individuals said he was 100% different um, since taking his medication, but he still had some behavioral issues. So the uh, court went through the alphabet factors in order for transfer. And, you know, the uh, he didn't have any prior history, but he did have, or as, as far as juvenile history in Nebraska, he did have prior indications of violent behavior, uh, indications of manipulation, uh, some other things. <clears throat> and they actually uh, retained him in criminal court and the Court of Appeals here affirmed that retention in criminal court uh, after going through the alphabet factors. Uh, interesting transfer case to, to look at, especially with you know uh, the egregiousness of the offense <clears throat> and how that balances out with the other factors uh, here. And even noting that deterrence can be a factor for the court to consider um, in, in, in some regard uh, for community safety and otherwise. So a uh, really interesting case from a psychological point of view. And if you have anything uh, which is an egregious case in juvenile court, you might want to look into that uh, if you have a transfer hearing coming up. Is that it? Yeah, it's it. It was firmed. Is that it for everybody? Yeah, I think that's it for all of them. Oh, man. Let me get some. I don't know what we're going to do here. Maybe. Oh, uh, yeah, we'll do that. But I, I just, you know. Yeah, I'm in such a Christmas spirit. Yeah, it is the season. So yes, I don't. I feel like you're not in the Christmas spirit. Well, you look outside and it looks more like July than Christmas. So, 
Which I will take every You'll day take of the it? week. Oh yeah, sunshine. I'll take sunshine on Christmas than you know over snow any but, day. But it's Christmas in here. I've finished my cocoa. My gingerbread is mostly gone. That's true. I'm really eyeing that uh, Yule log over there. I, I, I see you staring uh, very intently at the uh, the 42-inch fireplace on the... Uh, does that say Samsung under it? Okay. Listen, it's uh, we can't have a fireplace in this place, but, uh, I mean, we can have great times. So, yeah, anywhere. Anywhere. So we got Christmas, uh, big plans? No, just kind of the usual. All right, that's uh, that's it. Yourself? Yeah, uh, usual. I, mean, I get to do the Nebraska tour. I get to drive across Nebraska twice. Nothing better than that. It's <laughs> nothing. I love it. Uh, but I get to see a lot of Interstate 80, so I uh, hope the weather cooperates this weekend. It's always lovely this season. It is. So that's Point Two Law Review uh, for another week, brought to you by Anderson Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Uh, let's see. What else is going on? I didn't even say what week it was at the beginning. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm just so full of Christmas spirit. That you can't even remember what week it is. I can't even remember just, what I'm week it is. I'm just overtaken. I just know it's Christmas. Almost. So uh, go back to episode one for the disclaimer. Let's see. We have offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. And that's it for this week. That's it. All right. Have a great week, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>